Welcome to another episode of Too Close to Home, the series where we dig up creepy stories, haunted places, and mysteries from our very own Patreon's hometowns. In this episode, we'll be looking at Paul, Alicia, Matthew, Sarah, and Mary, and do we have some good stories in store for you five. If you want us to dig up stories from your area, then head on over to Patreon and join our Too Close to Home tier. Thank you everyone for supporting us. And now, especially Paul, Alicia, Matthew, Sarah, and Mary, it's time to hit those lights, sit back, and enjoy. Matthew Rosen, Nanticlo, South Wales. Our patron Matthew is from the tiny ancient village of Nanticlo, situated deep within the South Wales Valleys. Now, we've struggled to find anything creepy in Nanticlo, although the surrounding areas are full of ghosts, it seems, so we've gone a little further out for those. However, we did find something that is unique to Nanticlo, so first we'll take a look at that. It's the Nanticlo Roundhouse. The Nanticlo Roundhouse is a unique relic of the Industrial Revolution and is the last private castle to ever be built in Britain. They were built in around 1816 by Nanticlo Ironmasters, Joseph and Crosshay Bailey, at the northeast and southwest corners of the wall that surrounds their mansion house. They were intended as a refuge against the armed revolt by their workforce, caused by Crosshay's threat to cut wages. Two fortified structures were built at the time, but only one still remains intact. The towers symbolised the social upheaval at the time, which would eventually create the modern labour movement in Britain. So although not many people know of their existence, no other site in Wales gives such a stark reminder of the bitter conflict between ironmasters and their workforce. And in addition to that, all the fittings of the tower were made from cast iron, and the remaining tower is one of the earliest surviving uses of structural cast iron in Britain. So Little Nanticlo has quite a claim to fame. The one remaining tower is now privately owned, but can be viewed from the road. Perhaps the creepiest place near to Nanticlo is the Skirid Inn, a place we know all too well, as we spent the night there. But as we've extensively covered the Skirid Inn in a previous video, we have moved a few miles down the road to Caerphilly Castle. Caerphilly Castle is the largest castle in Wales, and is the second largest in Britain. The aquatic defences that surround the castle are entirely man-made, and thought to be the best in Britain. The Grand Castle was built in 1266 by Lord Gilbert de Clare, who built it to protect his country and his French wife, Princess Alice of Angouleme. However, when he found out from a monk that Alice was being unfaithful with nobleman Gruffydd the Fair, he demanded that Gruffydd be hanged immediately and that Alice be sent back to France. Two weeks later, Alice died suddenly, apparently of a broken heart. But it's said in death she returned to Caerphilly Castle, where she can often be seen floating around in a luminous emerald dress. Apparently, she has an affinity with the ivy that rampantly grows at the castle walls, and can be seen rustling it as unsuspecting visitors walk by and will offer her hand to be shook to those she likes the look of. If that wasn't scary enough, Caerphilly Castle is also the home of a terrifying bat-like creature known as Grach Hiribin. The monstrous being, which has shriveled skin, stretched over its bony body, bat-like wings, blackened teeth and arms that are horribly out of proportion to its long body. The rumours, which date back many years, tell of the creature swooping through the air, screeching all night long when a loved one is about to die. The rumours also state 
that it's been known to attack, sinking its long claws into passers-by's necks. We'd love to know, Matthew, if you've ever been to the Skirid Inn or to Caffili Castle. Paul Popper, Saline, Michigan. Our valued patron Paul lives in Saline, a city in Washtenaw County in the US state of Michigan. The city got its unusual name when in the 18th century French explorers canoed up the river in search of salt springs and named the river Saline, meaning salty, and the name of the city followed. For you, Paul, we're looking at a little known poisoning incident and a rather sinister bridge. We'll start with the bridge. South of Saline, Michigan, along Maple Road, lies a bridge that spans the Saline River. To the locals, it's known as Troll Bridge, and with good reason. So many things have happened near or on the bridge that it is the most well-known creepy location in the area. Legend states that many years ago, a husband and wife were driving across the bridge when their car broke down. The man got out of the car to see if he could fix the problem, but when he didn't return after over an hour, his wife became concerned and got out of the car to look for him. After looking around the vehicle, apparently she found his body lying behind the car. No one knows what happened next, but the next day, the bodies of both of them were found side by side, dead, with every bone in their body broken. After the tragedy, the bridge was dubbed Troll Bridge, and the name has stuck ever since. Soon, the bridge became a magnet for teens to hang around, daring each other to cross. But again, tragedy struck when in 1973... A small group of friends got the idea to blow up the bridge and attempted to set up a makeshift bomb, but it didn't detonate, so one of the kids took the device home to fix it, and it unexpectedly exploded in his face, killing him. If that wasn't enough, in 1981, a man from Adrian was found dead under the bridge. Today, the original bridge has been replaced with a new one, but even people who know nothing about the tragedy say crossing the bridge, especially at night, fills them with a sense of foreboding and anyone who crosses it can feel it holds a sinister secret. Ann Arbor Hospital Poisoning The next case we're looking at for you, Paul, is less than 10 miles away from Saline, in Ann Arbor. The area is better known for the Michigan murders committed between 1967 and 1969 by John Norman Collins, but we have covered him on our Cold Case Detective channel, so we're going to look at the lesser-known case of the Ann Arbor Hospital murders. In 1975, there was a sudden spat of patients experiencing unexplained severe respiratory distress at the Ann Arbor Veterans Administration Hospital. In a 20-minute period alone, three people nearly died of respiratory failure. The unexpected incidents made Dr. Ann Hill, the chief of anesthesiology, look into the possibility of someone poisoning the patients. Dr. Hill took things into her own hands and theorized the patients were being given a muscle relaxant based on their paralyzed state when in distress, and she was proved right when she successfully administered an antidote to save a patient. It was eventually discovered that the drug used was pavulon, an equivalent to curare, a highly toxic substance used by certain indigenous tribes in South America to poison their hunting arrows. Pavulon causes muscles throughout the body to become paralyzed, incapacitating the diaphragm and preventing breathing within three minutes of administration. This discovery prompted the FBI to get involved, and they narrowed their suspects down to two Filipino nurses, after two patients identified them as having injected something into their IVs prior to a respiratory stress episode. 
The two nurses were indicted on 10 counts of poisoning and 5 counts of murder in June of 1976 and were found guilty of 3 counts of poisoning and conspiracy to poison patients, but they were acquitted of the murder charge. However, that was not the end of the matter. Many believed there was a miscarriage of justice due to there only being circumstantial evidence coupled with prejudice towards the two accused nurses. Less than a year later, a judge set aside the guilty verdicts and the women were exonerated. It does seem the wrong people were accused as a year after the guilty verdicts were dropped, the same drug was used to poison patients in a New York hospital, possibly administered by the real Ann Arbor poisoner. But we may never know. Let us know if you've ever crossed Troll Bridgepole, and if you've ever heard of the Ann Arbor hospital poisonings. Alicia War, Rochester, New York Rochester, New York is known for its large population, many historical buildings and cultural events. And our patron, Alicia, is lucky enough to live there. For Alicia, we're going to look at a fairly well-known serial killer, as well as a haunted museum. We'll start with Arthur Shawcross. Arthur Shawcross was a huge man. He stood at six feet tall and weighed 300 pounds. Shawcross started his criminal life as an arsonist in his hometown in Watertown, New York, before moving on to much more serious offences. Shawcross was a troubled man who frequently lied and was prone to fits of rage that often led to physical abuse of his four wives. On April 7, 1972, he took his neighbour, 10-year-old Jack Blake, fishing, but Jack never returned, and five months later his body was found. Shortly after, another girl, 8-year-old Karen Ann Hill, was murdered. This time, neighbours witnessed Shawcross with the girl, shortly before her death, and he was arrested and convicted of both murders and sentenced to 25 years in prison. However, after just 14 years imprisonment, inexperienced prison staff and social workers made a fatal misjudgment and concluded that Shawcross was no longer dangerous and he was released on parole in April 1987. After his release, he was relocated to Rochester, New York, with his fourth wife. Although local authorities were not notified that he was living in the community. Eventually, he settled in permanent lodging at 241 Alexander Street. In March 1988, less than a year after his release, Shawcross began murdering again. In total, he murdered 12 women from the Rochester area before he was finally captured two years later. He went on to be convicted of 11 murders, with a 12th not officially ascribed to him. He became known as the Genesee River Killer, after some of his victims were found dumped in the Genesee River. Shawcross was held at the Sullivan Correctional Facility. He gave several interviews about his murders, and claimed he was abused as a child. It's unclear whether his claims were true. Shawcross died in prison on the 10th of April 2008, aged 63, after a fatal heart attack. Similar to fellow serial killer John Wayne Gacy, Shawcross took up painting, creating bright visages of butterflies, wildlife, and water features that belied the monster he truly was. Haunted Rochester Rochester seems to be teeming with paranormal activity, so we'll start with the George Eastman Museum. George Eastman was the founder of the Eastman Kodak Company. He spent most of his life in Rochester, and after he died by suicide, a museum was set up in his name on the estate where he lived. It's the oldest museum in the world that is dedicated to photography, 
and it houses one of the world's oldest public film archives. It is also the place that George Eastman's ghost resides, and those that have visited or worked at the museum get the distinct feeling they are being watched over by the man himself. Not sure if you've ever been, Alicia, but if not, we'd love for you to take a visit there and let us know if you see or feel anything. Next, we'll take a look at the Auditorium Theatre that was originally built as a Masonic temple in 1928. These days, it's a popular venue for Broadway shows, but it's also considered to be one of the most haunted locations in Rochester. There are several ghosts that have been spotted in the theatre, including an elderly gentleman and a man wearing a red coat. Witnesses say that the apparition of the older man hangs around backstage, and that he has been known to move things around from time to time whereas the ghost with the red coat only ever appears in the foyer, and often after hours. There have also been reports of unexplained voices heard inside the theatre. Finally, we'll take a look at the Sepulchre Cemetery, which is believed to date back to around 1871, whose main claim to fame is it's the final resting place of Francis Tumblety, the man that many believe was Jack the Ripper. However, it is not Tumblety that haunts this creepy graveyard, that is left to a woman who is said to lurk around the gravestones, especially in the evening. Sometimes she is accompanied by smaller apparitions believed to be her children. Let us know, Alicia, if you've ever been to any of these places. And if so, did you experience anything strange there? Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories. A paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings, from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9pm Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. Mary Terhune, Syracuse, New York. Our patron Mary was born in Syracuse, New York, but has just moved to Sullivan County, Pennsylvania, but went to art school in New Bedford, Massachusetts, so is spoiled for choice of locations. Mary, we've decided to look at Syracuse, New York, and New Bedford, Massachusetts. We'll start with Syracuse, and the haunted Cedarvale Road. Just 10 miles south of Syracuse is Cedarvale Road, that, over 60 years ago, was the scene of a brutal, terrifying car accident. Part of the road is very bendy, with 13 curves, and is known by that name, and curve number 7 is called Dead Man's Curve. According to the local legend, in the 1920s or 30s, a newlywed couple were driving from their wedding reception down Cedarvale Road, on their way to a friend's house on Otisco Lake, but as they started to round Dead Man's Curve, their car stalled, the husband told his new bride to wait in the car while he walked down the road to the local store to get help. As his bride waited in the car, she dozed off, and when she woke up, it was dark, and she could hear scratching on the roof of the car. She was too afraid to get out of the car alone, so stayed put, and at some point she dozed off again. The next time she woke up, it was morning, and she saw a policeman tapping on the window. They escorted her out of the car without saying much, and while they led her away, she turned around and looked back, and was horrified to see her husband, hanging by his neck attached to a branch of the tree they had parked under. 
the poor woman had a complete breakdown and spent the next few years in the local asylum until she died of a broken heart and mind. A few years later, a local farmer driving through the area saw a woman standing on the side of the road at the seventh curve. She was wearing a wedding dress. When he stopped to ask if she needed help, she vanished into thin air. To this day, people traveling along Cedarvale Road report seeing the woman in white, glowing as her tortured soul searches for a dead husband. Mary, we'd love to know if you ever drove through and had any experiences with the woman in white. Next, we'll move on to New Bedford, Massachusetts, and the serial killer who was never caught. Usually when nine women are murdered or disappear in the same area in similar circumstances, a serial killer on the loose springs to mind. However, in the late 1980s in New Bedford, Massachusetts, nobody connected the dots, meaning this particular serial killer remains unidentified and possibly still at large. The first victim, Deborah Medrios's remains were discovered in July 1988 by a passing motorist near northbound Route 140 in Freetown, Massachusetts. Within weeks, another woman's body was found, and over the course of the next few months, more victims were either reported missing or found dead. In total, the deaths of at least nine women and the disappearances of two, all from New Bedford, Massachusetts, were attributed to the same killer, along with the assaults of numerous other women. The killer appeared to prey on vulnerable women and was possibly wearing a badge of authority to lure them before murdering them and dumping their bodies outside of New Bedford, near highways or major roads. The murders abruptly stopped around a year after the first victim was found, and some theorized that the perpetrator was either in jail, had died, or had just moved on to a different area. Over the years, investigators identified more than a few potential suspects, but there was never enough evidence to arrest or convict. In total, 15 children lost their mothers, and their devastated families are no nearer getting justice. To this day, all the families can do is wonder who was it. The case is not closed, and the cold case unit in New Bedford haven't given up hope of finding out who the New Bedford serial killer is. A book written by Maureen Boyle titled Shallow Graves, The Hunt for the New Bedford Highway Serial Killer is well worth a read for more information on the case. Sarah Chichester, Cardiff. Cardiff is the capital of Wales. It's also the hometown of our value patron, Sarah. For you, Sarah, we're going to point out some of the quirky parts of Cardiff, but first we're going to look at a case you've asked us to mention, the sad disappearance of Lorraine Ridout. On January 31st, 2016, 57-year-old grandmother, Lorraine Ridout, left her home in the Gabalfa area of Cardiff to visit a friend. Sadly, Lorraine never reached her friend's house and hasn't been seen since. To this day, her fate is a complete mystery. Despite extensive searches in the area, using the most up-to-date equipment and resources, nothing has been found. Police dug up two gardens in the area, but drew a blank. Lorraine's desperate family even hired psychics, and two of them said her body was in the River Taff in Cardiff. They were convinced Lorraine had entered the water and was struck beneath the surface. They even pointed out the location, however an extensive search by police dive teams failed to find Lorraine in the river. In the intervening years, there have been no sightings and Lorraine hasn't accessed anything medical or financial. It's as if she has just vanished into thin air 
and her entire family are tormented by not knowing what happened to their beloved mother, grandmother and wife. The police investigation remains open, but there are currently no new leads, and we urge anyone who lives in the area or visited around the time Lorraine disappeared to think back and come forward with any information that may help and contact South Wales Police via 101 or call Crime Stoppers anonymously on 0800-555-111, quoting reference 036372. Lastly, we'd like to look at some quirky areas in Cardiff, Eucera. Similar to London, the capital of Wales has hundreds of quirky little tales that most people pass by every day and do not realise. Did you know, Sarah, there is a junction in Cardiff known as Death Junction? It's situated off Albany Road, City Road, Cruise Road, Richmond Road and Mackintosh Place, but it doesn't get its name due to car accidents. It dates back to 1679, when allegedly two Catholic priests, Philip Evans and John Lloyd, were hung, drawn and quartered for treason in the area, for executing their priesthood. It is alleged that several men were beaten and whipped for refusing to give evidence against the two priests, and over the next century, the area would become a regular point of hangings. Today, Richmond Road runs through the centre of where these executions occurred, and at the NatWest Bank, near Death Junction, is a plaque remembering the two priests. Another one is if you look carefully at Lansdowne Road Railway Bridge, you'll notice some holes in the metal structure. These are believed to have been the result of being machine-gunned by a low-flying aircraft in World War II. They can still be clearly seen today, and serve as a reminder of what the brave men and women had to endure during wartime. Next up is St. Mary's Street, which runs through Cardiff city centre, and is well known for its bars, restaurants and shops. But few realise that back in 1555, St. Mary's Street was a completely different place. It was a slum area where some of the poorest in society lived in the most primitive conditions. It was also a place where a poor Welsh fisherman, Rawlins White, lost his life in the most horrific way. Rawlins White was extremely religious and read the Holy Scriptures every night. But when he refused to recant his Protestant beliefs as required by everyone, when staunch Catholic Mary Tudor came to the throne, he was arrested and imprisoned. For over a year, he languished first in Chepstow Castle, then in Cardiff Castle. But still, he refused to give up his beliefs. Eventually, he was sent to prison in Cardiff, called the Cockmorel, where conditions were appalling, and was eventually convicted of heresy. His fate was to be burned alive. On the 30th of March, 1555, Rawlins was taken to the site of his execution at Bethnal Church. Apparently, he showed no fear, as he was chained to the stake, and he carefully arranged the wood and straw around his body so that the flames would do their work as quickly as possible. The fire was lit to cries of burn him. Rawlins White was only one of two Welsh heretics burned at the stake during the reign of Bloody Mary. The other was Robert Farrer, Bishop of St. David's, who died on exactly the same day in Carmarthen. Today, Bethnal Church is now the House of Fraser department store. Inside, there is a large plaque on the wall in memory of the horrific death of Rawlins White. So that's it for this episode of Too Close to Home. We'd like to say a massive thank you to Paul, Alicia, Matthew, Sarah and Mary. We hope you five enjoyed these special stories. And remember everyone, if you'd like us to dig up stories from your hometown, then check out our Too Close to Home tier over on Patreon. Thanks for watching, and as always, we'll see you in the next video.